Well, welcome again. If you are a uh, first-time guest with us or a visitor, we want to let you know how honored we are to have you here. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. We are blessed that you would give us your first Sunday of the new year. If you're still in town with family, then we are honored that you are here um, this morning as well. We are uh, kind of moving back into a series that we started way back in September, a series that we're entitling Called to Life. And it's been a minute since we've been there, actually. It's been a lot of minutes. It's been like 90,720 of them. Um, seven weeks, 63 days since we've even visited the idea of First Peter. Uh, but I'm excited to get back into it because, as we talked about, if you were here in those days, First Peter is a book, is a really a call to life. Uh, it's a really powerful letter that is written to believers that are scattered all over the world that are waking up to one reality. And that reality is this, life is hard. Life is hard. And for a lot of us, that's an understatement, right? We know that. Life is difficult. Uh, it has its moments, though, right? It has its moments where it feels like it's manageable or we feel like we have our handle on it. But then it comes in swells and at times it feels like it's just knocking us over. Life is difficult. It's challenging. People are challenging. Relationships are challenging. Financial lives are challenging. Singleness is challenging. Marriage is challenging. Raising children. Trying to get out of financial stress is challenging. Life is hard. Dealing with grief or hurt or brokenness or disappointment or vulnerability or dealing with the reality that I'm just not who I want to be, right? Or even dealing with the struggles that come with living is hard. Well, the letter that Peter writes to these scattered believers is really addressing some very similar things that you and I are living in the middle of, which is life is not easy. Now, those believers are waking up to really intense persecution. They're waking up to the reality that today might be the day that I die for believing in Jesus. They were scattered all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And they were waking up to the reality that they were extremely lonely in this following of Christ. And that life was challenging and hard. And so Peter writes this letter addressing that difficult question in the middle of it. How do I find hope and joy and purpose in every moment, even when life is hard? And as I was thinking way back in the summer about this series, I was thinking about, that's a real huge part of my heart. Like, how do I find hope and joy and purpose in every moment, even when those moments are really, really challenging? Because that's what God desires for us. He desires us to have this incredible, abundant, real, true life even in the midst of life's difficulties. Scripture's full of that call. So how do we do that? Well, we began unpacking this kind of verse-by-verse -verse movement, talking about following Jesus in the middle of life's difficulties. And I told you that I wanted you to remember two things about this letter. The first is that I wanted you to remember that you're not alone. Loneliness is one of the greatest tools of the enemy. He wants to discourage your heart and break you down and make you think that you're the only one dealing with the things that you're dealing with. You're the only one struggling with that or struggling with this, whose marriage isn't perfect, or whose kids aren't great, or whose financial world is falling apart. You're the only one struggling with self-esteem, with issues, with pain, with all of those things. But what we learn if we read Scripture and if we open our hearts to everybody else around us, especially in the community of believers, we recognize quickly that we're not alone. Number one, we're not alone because God tells us He's with us. He says, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. And God's very presence goes with us. We know that. But he's also given us this incredible community of believers. I'm not talking about the particular Vine Community Church. I'm talking about the church, other believers, people that will walk through life with us. That we're not navigating these things alone, but that we are in this thing together. That we are not alone, right? 
and that we have been called to something great. The second thing I wanted you to know is you've been called to life. We are not called to just merely exist, to draw another breath and try and get from one hurdle to the next hurdle to the next hurdle, watching our kids or our family or whatever it is go and just sort of grow up and exist and get to the other side and somehow just have made it. We're actually called to thrive, to have this incredible, joy-filled, abundant, amazing, incredible life. And that life is for you. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. It's God's promise. He calls us to it. And First Peter is that call to life that we are not alone, that you've been called to something magnificent, and that you, yes, you can find hope and joy and purpose in every moment, even the difficult moments. And if you remember about <clears throat> seven weeks ago when we left off, we left off talking about husbands and wives. We had talked about slaves and masters and unjust governments, and we moved into husbands and wives. We talked about the incredible beauty of a godly woman and the incredible deep responsibility of a godly man and the challenges that lay there within and how marriage can be an incredible and beautiful picture of the sacrificial love of Christ. And this morning what we're going to see is, is Peter's going to turn on that pivot point, those difficult Challenging relationships, slaves and masters, unjust rulers and governments, husbands and wives that sometimes aren't living perfectly in harmony together. And he's going to turn on that pivot point and talk about how we are called to have this incredible life even in the middle of difficult relationships. Difficult, unjust, challenging, hard relationships. Because if we talk honestly for a moment, people are hard. Relationships are hard. Every single one of us in here has been hurt by somebody else. We have been laid vulnerable and we have had our hearts stepped on. We have been betrayed. We've had people gossip about us. We've had them speak behind our backs. We've given our heart to someone who has not taken care of it. Maybe it's not that personal. Maybe we just have someone at work that is hard or demanding or demeaning or discouraging. And it's just hard. Relationships are tough. And every one of us has had those moments, right, where we just have to deal with people. Some of the greatest hurt in my entire life has come at the hands of believers. People in the context of the church. Not those out there. Because those we tend to be vulnerable with tend to hurt us the most. So what do we do with difficult, challenging, hard relationships? Both those are with believers and those that are in the world, those that are in the workplace or our neighborhoods, those are within the context of our families, those that have real deep kind of connotations of pain, parents, siblings, marriages, coworkers, bosses. How do we live in that? Well, Peter actually is going to address that very specific thing, which is how do we find hope and joy and love life in the middle of, middle of suffering and interpersonal relationships? How do we deal with that. And he's going to be very specific about it, giving us a couple of key things to hang on to, and then an unbelievable promise that if we just anchor our heart to this promise, we can find hope and joy even in the middle of those most discouraging moments of relationships. So what we're going to do is we're going to open Peter to chapter 3, 1 Peter to chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 8. And we're going to explore this idea of suffering through the lens of interpersonal relationships. And we're going to see the way that God calls us to this incredible and beautiful victory. So if you brought your Bible with you, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 8. If not, there's one right there beside you. We'd encourage you to bring it every single week. Um, you probably got one. If you don't, keep the one that's right there. You're welcome to have it. 
Uh, we'd love for you to have it. Put your name in it. Um, write all in it. Keep it. Um, we'd love for you to keep that. But we want you to have it each week. We will be in it. That is our bona fide, guaranteed lock of the week. We will be in Scripture. So um, let's take a moment. Let's pray. And then we'll dive into this text today. Lord, I know it's a lot of recap, but it's been a while since we stepped in First Peter. The truth is, Lord, is that Peter speaks directly to places that my heart hurts. It speaks in the places that are challenging, that are difficult, that we don't like always uncovered. It speaks to places of hardship and hurt and suffering. A lot of us in here have dealt with hurt and pain from another person. Lord, a lot of us in here are dealing with that right now. We're dealing with someone or people that we have trusted our heart with that have hurt it. A lot of us in here are, are dealing with difficulties in our marriages or difficulties at work. Or we just have someone that just, it's just hard. It's just hard. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word, what you would do is you would speak encouragement and truth to us. That you would show us not just how Christ lived, but how we're called to live in response to that. And how your promise is that we can love life and we can see good days. That is your incredible and glorious promise. That even in the middle of difficulty, we can love life and see good days. So help us be a community of people that fight for what matters to you. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. To just drop the barriers, drop the walls, whatever resentment or jaded heart you had may have built up against somebody or something. Just to ask the Lord to lower them. For just a moment. And ask him to make your heart tender. And to teach you. Pray that in your heart. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in the life of someone else. Let's be a community that prays for each other. Lord, as we gather together this morning, I pray that you would teach and instruct our hearts, that you would encourage us, that we would walk out of here empowered in a very clear way. That you have hope and promise for us, purpose in every moment, because we have been called to a remarkable life in Christ. So we ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. So we're going to read this in the context of that setup, right? Life is hard. Peter's talking about suffering, and he's talking about suffering specifically in the context of relationships, difficult ones. This is what we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, 8, and we'll go down through 12. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So Peter starts off with this word finally, which is actually connecting a lot of the tissue that we studied way back in October and November, the early November, all of October. Finally, he's sewing together all of these relationships, slaves and masters, unjust governments, difficult authorities, husbands and wives. He says, finally, in all of those circumstances, those challenging, suffering points they have to do with people, finally, in all of those, what I want you to do is I want you to pay attention because these things that I'm about to tell you are going to tie all of those together. They're not separated from those difficult things. So in the middle of those difficult situations, relationships, struggles, I want you to understand this. So he says, finally, hear me, tying these things together, all of you, live in harmony with one another. So Peter is going to give two specific instructions. The first one he's going to say is, listen, when living in difficulty, struggling, hard interpersonal relationships with believers or not, slaves and masters, unjust governments, husbands and wives, whatever they are, people that are hard, work to live in harmony with each other. Now, of course, on the surface, that sounds relatively simple, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live a harmonious life. The idea of harmony is that idea in concert with, right? That we all don't sound the same, we don't speak the same, we don't vote the same, we don't react the same, we don't use the same language. But when placed together, the beautiful sound that it makes is better than the single voice, right? Harmony. It adds depth, it adds beauty, it adds strength, right? So Peter says, do your best to live in harmony with one another, meaning that you are working actively to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Now, that's a pretty broad biblical principle. No one's going to argue with it because that's what we're called to as followers of Christ, right? We're called to live and broker peace, to be about harmony, to not be about disharmony, to not be about brokenness, to not live with regret and jaded anger and upset hearts, but to live in a place where your heart feels like it is in harmony, it is in tune, it is singing in concert with other people which is wonderful until it's not, right? Because when disharmony happens, life is hard. And it's not as easy as just going, hey, I'm just going to forgive and forget and just kind of move on down the road. That's why Peter says, do your best, do your best, work hard to live in harmony with one another. And then he's going to give us some specific examples of how we do this. Because he knows it's not just like, oh, yeah, hey, We're going to be good, right? It's great. We're just going to all be singing this great choir of people that I hate, right? (laughs) Peter says there's some specific things here that will bring about harmony if you truly work on them with people. Listen to what he says. Work on harmony. Okay, that's our first thing. And then he gives four examples. He says this. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and be humble. So he says, you want to know how to work on living in harmony with, the first thing you do is you reorient your heart. It's a heart reorientation by being sympathetic. You have to be a sympathetic person. You know what sympathetic means? It means that you identify with the hurt of somebody else. That's what sympathy actually is. Sympathy means that I understand and I identify with your hurt. To be sympathetic for someone means that you hurt when they hurt. Their hurt matters to you. 
Now, if you start thinking about this from a real standpoint, you have to truly believe that other people in your life are dealing with things before you can be sympathetic with them. So when you're dealing with contentious and difficult relationships, the first thing we want to do is pretend that that person is not a real person. They have no feelings and no heart. And they are mean and they are awful. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's a coworker. But the truth is we want to disassociate any personal things from them because we don't want to identify with the fact that they are real and they may be hurting. The saying is that hurting people hurt people. So most likely the truth of the situation is, is that if you have somebody in your life that is hurting you, that is broken your heart, that is speaking ill, that is doing whatever it is that is crushing your soul, the most likely scenario is that their heart is broken as well. And they are taking out their hurt on the people around them because they are a broken human. That is most likely the true scenario. It doesn't mean that what they're doing is right. It doesn't make it okay. I'm just stating a fact. That the reality is that when we are hurt and we are broken, we hurt people. For lots of different reasons, psychologically. But the reality is, is that we have to walk around and believe and be sympathetic to the fact that there are other people that are hurting. And you don't know what those hurts are. You don't know the struggles they're facing behind closed doors at home, within the context of their own marriages, their own children. A lot of times what we see is the behavior, the words that they say, the quick stabs, the jabs, the things that they may speak. And the first thing we do is become incredibly defensive. But Peter says, listen, if we're going to work to harmony, you have to realize there's a person behind that heart. And you've got to be sympathetic. Which means you have to assume Right? And believe that the person is a person. And that most likely they're broken. Just like you. That's what it means to be sympathetic. They're not necessarily a callous, awful, horrible, evil person. Possibly. But most likely, they're a broken human with a shattered heart, a wrecked self-esteem. And they look a lot like you. So Peter says, if you're going to fight for harmony, you've got to, first thing you've got to do is rearrange your heart to being sympathetic and just saying, listen, I'm going to fight to not take this personally and I'm going to believe that you are broken. And you can take out what you want to on me, but I'm sympathetic with the fact that you have things in your life that are really hard. We don't know, right? You don't know. It could be a stranger, the waitress, the teller. They have a bad day. They get angry. They get upset. You don't know what they're walking through and walking with. Most likely it's something significant. Because we all carry those things. And we all take them out on people. So he says, listen, be sympathetic. Love as brothers. This talks a little bit more about the context of the family of faith. But he says, listen, love each other as brothers. In other words, love is family. Any of you that have siblings, brothers and sisters, know this is really hard. Like siblings fight. Like, really fight. They hold grudges. They struggle. Right? I have a brother. We fought all the time. We still fight all the time. We don't agree on much. But I promise you this, that if he called me at any moment in time, I would drop anything in the universe to walk alongside him through whatever hurt or struggle or victory he has. He's my brother and my family, and I love him. As difficult as life may have been for us, I would fight for him that he would have one good day. 
When Peter says that we love his family, we love through those things. Which means we see someone for more than just the argument they are to us. If I saw my brother just as the arguments that we had as kids, it would be the worst relationship ever. He'd punch me, I'd punch him, I'd call him a jerk, he'd call me a jerk, and we'd go the other way. But I don't, right? We're connected. We've walked through things together. I've seen him at his worst. He's seen me at mine. We've grieved together. We've laughed a lot. We've fought a lot. But I love him as a brother. And what Peter's saying is that part of that reorientation of our heart that believes and is sympathetic to other people's hurts wants to love the people around you as family. And that is hard because it puts the onus on you. I'm going to see you as a brother or sister. I'm not going to see you as the enemy. Even if I feel like you're treating me that way, even if I feel like you're hurting my heart, I'm just going to see that we are connected to something better. And as, a, as believers, we are. We are connected to something deeper and greater. But that onus is on you to decide that you're going to love as family. And this isn't easy stuff, right? It's really hard to have sympathy and to love someone as family when they've wounded your heart. But it's part of that working towards harmony, which means I'm not going to be a jaded, bitter person. Bitterness leads to death. And when I become jaded and bitter, right, I can't see past myself. And we're going to fight jaded and bitter hearts by being sympathetic and loving as family. He goes on to say, the third one, he says, be <clears throat> compassionate. Now you may think sympathy and compassion, they're pretty much the same, right? Sort of, but not. Compassion actually takes sympathy up a notch. Sympathy is identifying with the hurt in somebody else. Compassion is identifying with the hurt in somebody else and wanting to relieve it. What we see is that Jesus is compassionate. Compassionate with people. He's not just sympathetic to the guy who's struggling and hurting or crippled or has a, a daughter that's dying. He's not just like, oh, I re feel really bad for that guy. The very heartbeat of Christ is one of compassion, which is, I do identify with that, and I want to relieve your pain. I want to make your life whole. I want to free you from the trappings of sin or death or imprisonment of your heart. See, compassion takes sympathy to a new level. It says, not only do I understand and identify that you're struggling, but I don't want you to be. And I would work to relieve it, to alleviate it. This is a real challenge, right? Because in order to do this, you have to not only identify the other person as a human and as a person, but you have to care enough to not want them to walk through pain. And most likely when we're hurt, when someone is abusive or angry or hurtful or vengeful to us, all we want is for them to get theirs. We want that wrath of that just to come back on them, for them to be exposed to the world for who they are. That's our nature. But what Peter's talking about is something that is so countercultural to our human nature that it's living like Christ. That we want to be sympathetic, right? And we want to take that to a next level by saying, I want to be compassionate. Which means if you truly are hurting, if I really believe that, why do I want to heap on top of that more hurt? Wouldn't I want you to be free from that? And if you're taking all your anger and frustration out on me, wouldn't I just rather you be free of all that imprisoned pain instead of just getting what you deserve? 
He says, if you're going to live towards this harmony and difficult relationships, sympathetic, right? Love is family. Be compassionate. Work to fight for somebody else's pain. Listen to them. Ask them what the struggle is. I think we will be really surprised if we ever figured out that a lot of people are dealing with the same things that we are. Financial stress. Children that are hard. Marriages that are on the brink. Self-esteem that's in the toilet. Feelings of depression at times and anxiety and fear. Most of us wrestle with those things. And then finally what Peter says in that kind of making harmony picture, he says, be humble. In the context of this, for me, what that means is that you've got to get rid of the you. Humility is not like the idea here in the context of relationships is not like I'm not going to take credit for something. It's more like this isn't about me. Because most of us are so angry that that person is not getting what they deserve. That they have wronged me, that they have done this to me, that they've spoken against me, that I need that to be vindicated, or I need justice, or I need them to see what I'm walking through, because I want them to know what they have put me through. The reality is, is that if we're humble, we have to get rid of the me. Even if you are right and they have done everything wrong, If I flayed open your heart, most likely what we discover is that you've done a whole lot of wrong things. And you yourself have hurt a lot of people. And you've spoken ill behind their backs and you've lied and you've struggled and you haven't loved well. Maybe not in this one particular circumstance. But the truth is, is that you are a broken, flawed person. And humility that comes in this context says, because I am, I can't hold you to a different standard. Jesus has forgiven and freed me, and therefore, I want to forgive and free you. Humility takes the me out of the equation. It's not, I need forgiveness. I need you to come crawling back. I need you to apologize to me because I deserve it. The truth is, you don't deserve it. I don't either. We are so steeped in sin ourselves that we don't deserve anything. The fact that God even lavishes anything on us is grace. And then we are called to lavish the grace that he has lavished on us. And humility says, because I've been lavished with grace and I'm not going to demand that you do for me what God has never demanded I do to him, do for him. What gives me that right? If God never demanded that I came crawling back, begging for forgiveness, telling him how sorry I was, but instead he just freely forgives me, then what gives me the right to demand that my mom or my sister or my coworker comes crawling back with their apologies on how wrong they are? Don't. It means that I'm going to work to lavish the grace that's been lavished on me. And this is hard. Just imagine what you've done to the Lord and done to people. If I had to apologize to every person whose feelings I've hurt over the years, I don't think I'd be able to take another breath on this earth to get through that list. 
I don't deserve grace, right? But yet Jesus is an infinite, incredible, loving God lavishes us on it and calls us to lavish it on people. Now this is hard because all this is on us and the reality is that we want it all to be on other people. Like when we're living in hard relationships, you should be doing these things because I have done nothing wrong. You need to tell me you're sorry. You need to stop talking about me. You need to stop doing these things and it will be better and I will forgive you when you do those conditional things. But what Peter says is that if we're going to work to harmony with it, it begins with me. It begins with me being compassionate and being sympathetic and loving his family, and taking the me out of the equation and being humble. It's a complete orientation of my heart before the other person does a single thing. A single thing. So he says, work to live in harmony. The second big point he makes is this. Comes in verse uh, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now, if you've mastered this, God, you're my hero. I would love to just spend time with you. Because this is what we desire, right? Nobody wants to say it out loud, but we don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but that's what we want to do. We do it in our marriages. Married people, listen. As soon as he says something or she says something, what do we do? We hit him right back. And the great thing about marriage is that we know what hurts We've held on to those things. We know the self-esteem flaws and the brokenness and the pain. We know what it is that you are most afraid of and it wounds you the most. And when we shout insults at each other, man, I fire back because I know how to get you. And we do it in other relationships as well. You say something about me, I don't include you on a group text. You do this, I make a little passive-aggressive Facebook post. Insult with insult, what we do, evil with evil, because this makes us feel better in the moment, or at least we think it does, because it eliminates all the things we just talked about. It's just temporary relief, which is never biblical. So you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. You say this about me, I'll say it back. I'm fighting for vengeance in my own righteousness. But if you read scripture pretty much anywhere, what you're going to find is that this is never ours to do, but always the Lord's. God always calls us to turn the other cheek, look the other way, not repay evil for evil, but let him be God. So he actually says that very clearly in Romans 12. I'll just read it to you. We won't explore it too much. But he says this, do not repay, is what Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the idea there of burning coals, don't think that if you're being nice to them, you get to passively aggress and make them feel terrible. Um, it actually is a, is a word about repentance. It means that if you do this correctly, with a correct heart, God will bring about brokenness and repentance in that person's life. It's not about getting back at them by they're mean, you're nice, they're mean, you're nice. No, it's saying that I want the Lord to work in you, and so I'm going to repay with a healthy and true heart. 
But if you think about that for a moment, everywhere we read in Scripture, do not repay insult for insult, evil for evil. Really simple command. But it doesn't stop there because what gets really difficult is that he actually goes one step farther and says, but we repay evil and we repay insult with what? With blessing. Don't repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but repay with blessing. This is where things get complicated. All that other stuff takes place in my heart. I can sort of pretend I'm doing it or not, and no one will ever really know. But the truth is, when someone hurts me, insults me, slanders me, speaks against me, or just wounds me, I'm actually called to repay them with blessing. And this is a very tangible thing. Romans talks about when your enemy's hungry, you feed him. When he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. In other words, you care about their needs and who they are as a person. You know how hard it is to bless somebody that has wounded you or a person that you love? To repay them with blessing? To not take them off the Christmas card list and blackball them from Thanksgiving or whatever? But to just bless them? To go by their house and give them a gift and tell them you love them? Even though they've been pretty awful to you, or at least it feels that way. Why is that? Why are we called to do that, right? Like, what's the purpose? Well, if we look at Romans, the purpose is obviously repentance, but obviously the truth is it's how Jesus loves you. Just think if, if God repaid you with insult and evil for every insult and evil you spoke or did, would you carry that weight? We'd be buried in the day, right? Like, we're called to love people and repay with blessing, as hard as that is. If you want to just keep insulting me, fine. But I'm going to try and love you the way that Christ loves me. Notice that all these things, the responsibility is on you, on me. We want the responsibility on everybody else. And I will forgive them when they come back to me. And if they apologize, I will lavish grace upon them when the apology comes and if I believe it. Do you know how many marriages have not survived that comment? That bitter heart are broken because he or she didn't do what I needed them to do before I truly forgave them. Has probably wrecked more marriages and shattered and brought about more divorce and shattered more relationships than anything else. Because it's that conditional response that says, until you do, I won't. And we are stubborn, awful people. And we will dig our feet in the ground and we will die on that soil. Scripture tells us something else. We don't repay insult with insult, evil with evil. We bless, which is really hard. But guess what? So is following Jesus. It's hard. Listen to what he goes on to say. He's actually quoting Psalm 34 here. And he says, listen, here are the two things, right? Work to harmony. Work to harmony. Don't repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but with blessing. And here is the promise that God has for you if you work toward these things. It's Psalm 34, and listen to this promise. He says, <clears throat> for you are called to these things so that you may inherit a blessing. You know what the blessing is? Listen to this. That you would love life and you would see good days. Now think about that for a moment. Like if you had a deep desire for your life, like what your heart truly is, Boats, house, cars, money, whatever. Like, take those things out. But if you could truly say what I really want for my life is, is to love it 
and we'll see good days. What an incredible statement from our heart. Like, I want to wake up and love my life. My kids, my family, my position, my places, my things. I want to look at the sun and the air and draw it in and say, I don't know how many of these I get left. But I love waking up and I love my life. And I believe that God will show me good days. See, the promise is for you. The promise of good days. You know how many of us just long for that? Think about the people that are living in Asia Minor persecuted. The promise is if they love the difficult this way, that God will bless them, will bless them, not by making everything rosy and taking away every difficult relationship they ever have. They'll probably still be living under unjust masters and difficult governments, struggling relationships. But the promise is that if you do this, your heart will be free. And when your heart is free, you will love your life and you will see good days. The reason that you won't see good days, the reason that you feel trapped is because you're not free. Because living this way, in this contentious, difficult, tied down, broken and interpersonal relationships is like prison. Living for harmony, not fighting insult with insult, it doesn't make everything go away. The truth is that person still may be a colossal jerk. But guess who's free? You are. You're free because you have loved like Christ has loved. And they can do what they want, but they will not overcome you. And what's the promise and the blessing of the Lord? That you will love your life and you will see good days. Why is that? Because you're not trapped. You're not held captive. You're not buckled down under the imprisonment or captivated by another person who you spend all your time thinking about and are consumed with and are hurt by. That's not freedom. It's trapping. It's imprisonment. But man, if my heartbeat was to say, God, I want to I love my life and I want to see good days. And Peter says, then do this. And he goes on to echo a few of the things that it says in the Psalms. And I'll do these really quickly. He says this. He says, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceitful speech. In other words, don't be a liar. Keep your tongue from speaking bad things. Don't be a liar. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So a couple of the things that we say, right, the things that we just talked about, the living in harmony, the being sympathetic and loving as brothers and being compassionate and being humble and not repaying insult with insult or evil with evil. Like, be someone that doesn't lie. Be truthful. Run from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And listen to what he says. Here's what the psalmist says. It says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Meaning that if you want God's favor and grace and eyes and ears on your prayers, then fight to live this way. If you feel like you're shouting at God, God, do this, fix this, do all these things, that you're held harboring deep resentment and anger towards other people, fighting insult with insult. Scripture's pretty clear that God doesn't just rain freedom down on you. He's going to make you deal with it until you're free of it. And his ears become attentive to those who are free. So we're fighting to live in harmony. We're sympathetic with the people. We love them as family, and we want to relieve their pain, and we're going to take the me out of it, right? We're not going to fight insult with insult, evil with evil. And when we do that, when we live that way, it's going to free and liberate our hearts to love our life and to see good days. 
And if I could pin my entire desire for life down into a nutshell, it would be that. God, I want to love my life and see good days. And what God says is then chase me, like honor me, like live this way, be free. And my eyes will be upon those, and my ears will be attentive. And you will be free. Free from all of that suffering. Peter's going to move into a new direction and talk about more ideas of suffering. Suffering for doing good and trials. We're going to be exploring those over the next few weeks. But this becomes an anchor point. If God is speaking to your heart this morning, telling you to be liberated from these things, that, that he wants you to be in a place where you love your life and see good days, then figure out which of these places you are stuck, that you are slave to, that you won't be released from. And fight your way out. Fight to see people differently. Fight to reorient your heart. Be a blessing. Repay hurt with blessing. The truth is, is that's what Jesus did for us. This is what this table actually is all about. That God did not repay our evil with evil. <laughs> they didn't punish us as our sins deserved. They didn't say, Treb, you are such a failure. And you have let me down so much that I'm just going to bail. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to give you what you deserve. And the truth is, is that he does the opposite. And this table is a picture of Christ's unbelievable sacrificial love for us. That in the middle of our deep sinful state where we cannot remedy our own problem, where we can't work our way out of it, where we can't free ourselves, Jesus in his infinite incredible love sacrificially and voluntarily went to the cross to die for sin of humanity. That if we trust and believe in him, we are liberated and free in Christ. This meal is about freedom. It's about freedom in Jesus. And most of us are living in bondage, though we have been set free. This morning as we celebrate this table, I'd encourage you to ask God to liberate your heart. To set you free. To bring you to a place where you can love life and see good days. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that all of his disciples would run and would take off and would abandon him after three years of walking the Judean countryside, on that very night as he sat with them, after he'd washed their feet, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. And as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Christ until he comes again. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith and hope in Jesus Christ. It is a promise of a God who loves and a God who returns and a God who has set us free. It is a promise to all those who put their faith in him that we are not due the penalty of our sin that we have been set free in Christ. This morning we're taking communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy word for saying when you come down front or there'll be a station in the back, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat. Don and our worship team are going to lead us in worship, and as you feel called and led, no particular order, we invite you to come down or stop by one of the stations, take communion, and then remain standing as we close our time in worship this morning. Let's invite our servers to come forward, and I will pray as they're making their way this morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. 
We thank you that, Lord, you have created space for us. In the middle of our sinful hearts, in the middle of our difficulties and struggles, God, you have not given up. You have not walked out. But you have given us freedom in Christ. That we have been set free in Jesus and that we are free to love well and to love much. And God, we ask this morning that what you would do in this meal is you would solidify that freedom in our heart. In the middle of difficult, contentious relationships that you would push us, God, to a place where we could live in harmony, to work to live in harmony, to be sympathetic and love as family and be compassionate and humble, to not fight insult with insult or evil with evil, but instead to reply with blessing. And that, God, in the middle of all that, that we might love our life and see good days because you are the king of kings. So as we, as we take this meal together and as we worship you, Lord, I pray that you would free our hearts through the death and resurrection of our Savior and our Redeemer, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.